Welcome to season four of the Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, professor of engineering education in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. In Research Briefs, we'll speak with engineering education researchers about what their lives are like, what they are finding out, and how their research is being used. This is our second podcast with Chanel Beebe. She is an artist, poet, and PhD candidate in the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. And you might recall from our first podcast, Chanel shared her journey as an engineer, artist, entrepreneur, activist, and engineering education researcher. And she also mentioned her passion as a systems thinker. And we've asked her now to use her systems thinker mind <laughs> to develop some intriguing ideas about her, how her identities developed and were interwoven. Um, the idea of identities is really a big topic in engineering education research, but people often, the researchers are looking at other people's identities. So they're looking at identity development from the outside. And it's very exciting that today we can hear about identity development from the inside, mm-hmm. from somebody who is really very um, self-reflective. So Chanel, thanks so much. Uh, ever since we did our first podcast a, a few weeks ago, I've been just dying to hear what else you have to say. So um, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. I am really happy to be here. Um, like you said, I've seen and done a lot of research on identity, specifically in engineering and how those things have developed. Um, but it's always you know, a little limited based off of how you can connect with the, the person whose identity is being st- studied. Um, and I've always been reflective, so I'm really excited to kind of talk about what I've seen in my identity development. Um, I'm excited, but also nervous because I'm still very uh, young, you know, relatively, but also um, a lot of these reflections I have not been able to share or, or research or, you know, document too deeply. So this is definitely one of the more emerging areas of my research. Um, so I'm really happy to be here today. Yeah, you're very, very welcome. Um, I will say, even as someone who is no longer young, a lot of these topics, uh, if one discusses it about themselves, does put you in a very vulnerable position to share your innermost self. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, I want to thank you for your courage in doing that because I know it's not easy. Yeah, yeah. so bear with me. A lot of these conceptions, I think, are, um, they're new, you know, they're emerging and as much as they're possibly grounded in research and definitely grounded in a lot of, you know, historical and cultural context, they're still very new for me in terms mm-hmm. of describing them and giving language to the interconnections between them. Cool, cool. Um, so we want to begin by asking you, uh, what would you see your various identities being? How do you conceptualize them? Um, well, ethnically, I identify as African-American and indigenous. Um, geographically, I am American, but I mostly identify with being a Detroiter, born and raised in Detroit. Um, I have, you know, interesting relationships with the United States of America, both continentally and kind of, you know, internationally. Um, but I am a Detroiter. I do have Southern roots. Um, I have ancestors of the transatlantic slave trade, and I also have ancestors that are indigenous to, um, to this continent. Um, so that's kind of me ethnically and geographically. 
practically, I identify as a writer, an artist, an engineer, an educator, a researcher, and a small business owner. I think that would be the, you know, the quickest way to summarize those things. Um, my more creative identity identities I've had since I was younger, um, but the rest of them I've kind of developed since I've, you know, 18 and up after going to college and being able to practice professionally. But I've been writing and drawing and stuff since I was young. So how do you feel your creative identities um, developed? Particularly, you know, all little kids draw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there was something special in that now you can look back at that and say, this was the beginning of my creative identities. So I'm fascinated to hear more about that. Um, Yeah. So I I intellectually know that most all of the cultures that I've come from have very rich storytelling, writing and expressive histories. Um, So I was exposed to a lot of that growing up. Um, I've been asked the questions a few times around like how did this painting develop? Um, and I realized that there's been this constant evolution between the space of I paint and I'm a painter, you know, like what happens when it becomes an identity and not just something you do sometimes. Um, and even the same thing with writing, you know, like I've been writing since I was young. I think I talked about in the last podcast, my mom always had paper for me. Right. So I've been putting pen to paper or scribbling something for a while. Um, but eventually I started identifying as a writer, right. And started putting it on my website and describing it as such, um, and my journey as a writer actually is a good example of kind of that evolving space. Um, I think, you know, when I think about how long I've been writing and how long I've been painting, um, I did a lot of it when I was younger, you know, like you had to do it for school. Um, I would recite other people's poetry at church, you know, so there was a lot of that practice kind of happening. Um, but I was also just kind of writing and journaling on my own. It was kind of a thing that was, you know, accepted for little girls. There were a lot of different technologies and commercialism around like journals and diaries for little girls. Um, but I eventually started sharing some of my poetry with my friends and family, um, not too deeply, but um, I do remember one of the poems I wrote in like fifth grade, my grandmother asked me to print it out and put it on her refrigerator. Um, so I remember that being like, okay, you know, not only does this mean something to me, but other people appreciate it. Um, and she's actually turning 70 this summer and I'm planning to like rewrite that poem uh, for her. So there was, you know, there was that familiar kind of support of it. Um, As I got older, I realized that poetry was something that was also, you know, performed to big stages um, as a function of deaf comedy jam, but also deaf poetry jam. Um, There were a lot of kind of places I could go online to watch people perform poetry and I loved it. I would often kind of just binge watch on YouTube, different, you know, spoken word performers. I didn't really think about performing until I started going to watch live performances. Um, and I love that. I love the energy of it. I love even the you know conversations you could have with the poets afterwards. Um, but the more I went to those events, the more I realized that it was cheaper to perform than just to watch. So like the cover for the whole event would be like 10 or $15. But if you perform, sometimes you don't have to pay the cover or sometimes it's like half the price. Um, because I had been writing, I was like, I could do that. You know, and I didn't have much staged right as a function of you know growing up in church and performing for different holidays or doing you know announcements um so the first time i performed it was great it felt awesome um that piece the first piece that i ever performed wasn't that good and i remember after i performed the first time like i could i could write something else for this you know i'm kind of realizing that there's a there's a difference between writing for 
for reading and for conversation and writing for performance, right? Um, so the the second time I was I performed um, was a little bit more, you know, impactful um, and a little bit more, I think, intentional. Um, by that time, I had already started meeting and interacting with communities of practice related to writing. So there was this organization called the Detroit Poetry Society that had recently been formed when I started writing or performing poetry. And they had this huge network of young, old, you know, um, experienced and amateur writers. They were offering workshops, a lot of different conversations, open mics. Um, so that's when I started really being like, okay, I'm a poet. You know, I'm a, I'm a poet because I write. I'm a spoken word poet because I perform. And I know this and I have reflection of this because I have other people who do it too. Um, and then eventually, you know, I realized that there was this other space that was kind of beyond personally writing, beyond sharing it with intimate friends, and even beyond just having a community of practice, there was this professional space where I can get paid to perform poetry. I can get paid to write and perform certain things. Um, and that really solidified, I think, the poetry and the writer and the, and the performer. Once I started getting paid to do stuff, um, it was like, okay, you know, um, I do this. And I think, like I said, it solidified it, but really solidified the professional side of it. I think the personal communal side has to come first for me to get to that place. Um, but I don't really, you know, I think for me, it was a, a cool progression, but I don't really think that everybody has to go through all of those different steps. Um, but for me, that was, that was it kind of the personal, the communal, and then eventually the professional. So I know when we spoke before, uh, you were able to actually put this idea of how you progressed, um, into almost a, a a model that had steps to it and you've alluded to it here, but I think it, when we first discussed it and you shared it, it was just like such an aha moment for me <laughs> that I'd like you to uh, just really explicitly um, state the different steps against just so that people realize, listen to this. It's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so like you said, this is an emerging kind of, framework that I've been using to kind of reflect on what my identity development or even practices have been. Um, as of right now, I'm calling it a practitioner mandala. Practitioner because I think, you know, when we think about identity, we often want to assume that people are defined by what they do. And to a certain extent, that is true. Um, but to other extents, what they do has its own realm of experiences, of practices, and of behaviors. Um, and mandala, um, really because I love the idea and the imagery of mandalas. I think they are really useful, um, but they also allow allow me visually and conceptually to have ideas placed on a map that does not necessarily exclusive in any sense. Like when you think of a Venn diagram, usually there are kind of distinct boundaries around these areas and you're looking at the very discrete interlaps and, and overlaps between those sections. When I'm with the mandala, it's just kind of spaces that you know overlap because the mandala implies symmetry. Um, you know, historically, they've been kind of four quadrants of kind of repeating designs. Um, so the practitioner mandala to me, um, it's not, you know, I haven't drawn a picture of it yet, but I do have like the conceptual text and what I think goes in the different areas. And I'm kind of excited, probably once I graduate this, this semester, I'll be able to really get creative with what it means to me. Um, but right now, the four areas are uh, personal and intimate creation, um, intimate sharing. So kind of that level of not necessarily on stage somewhere, but with family, with friends, with people you already know um, that may or may not be um, a part of, you know, 
a bigger community of practice, but they are a part of your existing kind of relationship base. Um, so after those two, I think is the actual community of practice, right? So that's when you're engaging with people who you might not know personally, you might not have had other relationships with, but they practice the similarly or practice something related to what you do. Um, so for me with poetry, that was the Detroit Poetry Society, right? Getting that community of practice. And then the, the last quadrant area is professional practice. Um, and that is very different usually from the personal, the intimate, and the communal, um, because now you're dealing with the industries, the economies, you're dealing with, you know, trying to sell stuff or even trying to get people to come, you know, see your things or to see how you're, how you're engaging with whatever practice that might be. Um, and I think that's a very useful um, framework, the pr- practitioner mandala with the kind of four quadrants. Um, lately, I've realized that there is possibly something in the center that is about um, exposure and inspiration. Um, that I think varies. Um, I know for me, like I said, I come from cultures where I was already exposed to the idea of writing and the idea of you know expressing with color and those type of things. Um, but there are you know points in every quadrant of that mandala where there needs to be some exposure or inspiration, right? So I think that putting that in the center, the center uh, would make the most sense. And I know for me, um, it almost kind of seems like you know there's this spiraling kind of journey where you kind of ping pong across the mandala and do different things in different steps. Um, I've already talked about my my poetry journey, but my art journey was kind of similar, you know, and kind of seeing those similarities is what made me like, there has to be something, some model here <laughs> underlying it. The engineer was like, I want to see, I want to see. Um, so for my art journey, it was, you know, my original exposure and inspiration was just kind of general curiosity, wanting to express something. Um, so I, I spent most of my life really in the personal creation quadrant of art um, and really just creating because I felt like it um, and creating because there was something that I couldn't express elsewhere. And I think I've talked to you about this before, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, the creation really comes from a place where there's something, a conversation with somebody else won't solve. Won't solve. Then I get into this kind of personal, this personal space. Um, and then depending on, you know, how fulfilling or how complete that practice, you know, is, then I think about sharing it with other people. Um, one piece that I did specifically, um, I call it Trapped in a Dream. And it was one of the biggest pieces I'd ever done when I did it. I think it was 2016, but I had just started in my PhD program. And as much as I had community kind of in my PhD program and back at home and kind of personal friends, I didn't really have anybody who was going through all of those worlds at the same time. Um, So I think I was having a lot of conversations. I had a therapist, I had friends, I had a lot of support groups, but there was a lot of things that I just couldn't get into one conversation, right? There's a lot of things that just couldn't feel validated. Um, so I started painting and initially I didn't know, never really do I know that I'm like painting what's on my mind. Like usually I'm just painting, right? I'm not mm-hmm. trying to embody or create some type of form that matches what's on my mind. Um, but once I finished it, I was like, oh my God, this is how I feel. This is, you know, I had created this very, um, very colorful landscape that had um, kind of muted contrast in the back, kind of showing that though things were different and changing, they weren't changing too much, you know, it was just kind of the shades and tones of things. Um, but the foreground was full of all these very vibrant, different figures and landscapes that almost didn't necessarily seem like they fit on the same plane or on the same canvas. Um, but they all had very different, like the color choices that I showed and the contrasts were very different, right? But the texture of it was kind of similar. Um, and that's, that one, I, I really was like, okay, I need to talk to somebody about this, you know? So that was one that, where the personal creation kind of pushed me to, I want to share this intimately, um, and then a couple of years after I did that piece, I started 
I kept, you know, practicing and sharing my art. Um, I started sharing it online and doing different types of things like that. But a few years later, I started, um, when I moved back to Detroit, I actually started seeking out artist communities. Like I had previously sought out poetry communities. Um, and that was transformational. That, um, that allowed me to not only to continue to have conversations with color that I couldn't have in person, but also to see examples of how other people had translated their lived experience and how they were carrying it in the world. Um, you know, some of them were in the professional practice space, but a lot of them had just deeper personal practices that I wasn't aware of. Right. So that community of practice shifted me back into the personal space and then also pushed me into the professional space. Um, and then eventually I was able to start, you know, hosting my own art shows, curating art shows. And I want to say in like 2019, I hosted an art show with like 70 pieces with like 40 different artists. Um, and by that time, I'm sure my personal practice might have been a little less than it was before because there is, you know, time involved. Um, but by that time, I think I was a lot more secure in saying I'm an artist. Like I do this, not just I paint, not just I have a website with art on it, not just, you know, this happens sometimes. But I know artists, I've sold art, I can sell my own art, I can tell a story about art. I know I'm starting to get familiar with the industry of it. Um, and like I said, both of those, the artistic journey and the poetry journey all have those kind of four or five pieces in common, the personal practice, the intimate sharing, um, the community of practice, the professional, and then some type of exposure or inspiration that kind of you know pushes you around the mm -hmm. mandala. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think it's also perfect too, because if, you know, if you think about the idea of somebody bouncing between different quadrants, even of like a boxing ring or something, um, it definitely reflects the emotional experience of it, right? Because yes. it's not a linear pathway. And you never really know what you're doing and where you're going. You know, you're just kind of being tossed with momentum. Um, but it's necessary. You know, I've, I've seen so much of my survival um, and even so much of my success be fortified and nourished by the stuff I've been doing as an artist and as a poet, you know, and in, and there's a you know a similar mandala for my research development, um, but I think they were all kind of happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I've told you how fascinated I am by this statement that um, you would go to painting when you needed to express things that a conversation couldn't solve, mm -hmm. um, and you spoke a little bit about that uh, in your other example, but. I'm, I'm so fascinated by it. I, I want to ask you to unpack it yet a little bit more. So okay. when you go to a painting, do you, do you sit down and say, I need to paint about this to reveal something to myself that I'm working through? Or do you just, do you just say, I have the urge to paint as you explain kind of with trapped in a dream that you, you had this urge to paint. And then later you looked and you said, Oh my goodness, this painting is reflecting yeah. this. So does it, does it happen um, that you intentionally try to work through that? Or is it something you realize later you're just kind of compelled to, to paint or does it happen different ways at different times? Yeah, it definitely happens different ways at different times. I think um, more often than not, I just feel the urge to paint and I'm not necessarily sure why. Mm -hmm. um, and then usually through reflection or even through the process of creating it, I then become intentional. Like, oh, this looks like this. Let me try this. Or, oh, this doesn't look like this, but I'd like this to go this way. Um, so there's often, you know, that more often than not, that's the creation that I'm, that I'm feeling. There are times, though, where I'll see other artwork or see, you know, even read or 
hear music, that makes me want to try things differently or try to um, intentionally create something that looks like this. Um, more often than that, though, I think is I'm trying to create something that feels like that, right? It's not, I'm, I ha don't have any formal training in terms of like figures or realism. Um, I could draw a person in a building if I tried and really spend some time on it. Um, but that's actually is not, you know, what I've enjoyed about my creativity. Um, so usually it's less about trying to create something that exactly replicates something in reality or something that is like, you know, very stringent, stringent to whatever the original idea was, um, but more so just giving it space to evolve. And if it still feels like how I felt when I started or connected to it, then I kind of keep going. Mm -hmm. But it really depends. Mm -hmm. It really depends. Um, so it, it sounds like both your art and your writing have been spaces where you've expanded and, and nourished your skills with communities. Um, and you talked a little bit about flipping back and forth between the different spaces of the mandala. Should we bring, uh, now, uh, engineering and researching into this and, and, mm discuss a bit about how you feel those might overlap and interact? Yeah, um, I think there is almost infinite overlap between those identities. Um, and that that idea is based both, based both on how it feels, but also, you know, there's a lot of research that, say that, that says that we don't experience our identities in vacuums, right? That they either intersect, um, but there's also research that talks about identities occurring as assemblages, kind of paired next to each other and interacting. Um, and I think that's very much how I experience mine. Um, I don't ever stop being a writer or artist, whether I'm teaching or doing research, collecting data or even writing grants, right? I'm always thinking about um, the story I'm telling, I'm thinking about the conversation I'm trying to start. And I'm thinking systemically really about how to pull from these different toolkits to address whatever the issue is, right? Or to address whatever the goals are. Um, and I think because the writing and the painting were there initially as I developed as an engineer and as I developed as a researcher, all of those steps through the engineer practitioner mandala and the steps through the researcher practitioner mandala were informed and connected by what was happening in the art and writing mandalas. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, you know, that was a struggle. That wasn't an easy kind of thing to carry. Even if I, I don't think I was very conscious of the fact that I was carrying those things. Um, but like I said, I've been painting all my life, but it wasn't until I got to undergrad in engineering that I was painting every day. Um, and, you know, towards the end of my engineering, I started sharing with my friends mostly because by that point, most of my friends were engineers and they didn't have a lot of artist friends. And they were like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, tell me more. Um, so there was that kind of, um, that push and pull where I always, not always, but often felt that um, my painting was something that made me different from my colleagues and from my peers, but also like it wasn't something that I could stop doing um, because it was so healing, so helpful. Um, you know, just going from problem sets that are full of numbers and figures and things that you don't care about um, to just colors, right? And seeing how they feel. And um, so that was, I think that was um, influential in my development as an engineer in the first place. Um, and then when it became time to become a researcher, um, I had just so happened to really get into poetry right before I came to grad school. Um, and that I think completely transformed the way I even understood what research could be, right? Because not only was I learning about all the practical kind of technical methodology things and the kind of industry of academia and how you write and how you tell stories and how you 
synthesized data, but I also was writing and performing on different stages in different places, right? And watching how certain pieces worked in Indiana, but didn't work the same in Detroit. Stuff that worked in Detroit only worked at the Black Culture Center in Indiana, but not in my department at Indiana, right? So I started thinking about how do I translate the stuff that obviously matters to me because it's coming out in my poetry, it's coming out in my work, um, but I don't necessarily have language for it in my research, right? And, and the poetry, I think, was the first place that I got to kind of practice saying, this is what bothers me about the world, right? This is what I love about the world. This is what I want to see more of. This is what I want to see less of. And the more you practice talking about that when it comes time to develop a research agenda or to come up with a research question, that language is kind of already there, right? Because I know I have poems about gentrification. I have poems about the disparities in education. I have poems about how Black men are treated or how, you know, how our spirit of design is co-opted, you know? So I have all that language somewhere and I have communities of people who talk about it in different ways. Um, so when I found myself developing as a researcher, it just kind of felt like another version of that, right? A, a little less fun because artists and poets have a, a more interesting way of talking and, more, and a more interesting way sometimes of, of planning events and doing collaborations. But still, you know, people are fundamentally creative. So I found myself in my research collaborations and as I'm you know, developing networks of researchers, pulling from the interactions that I've had with artists, right? You know, I've done a lot of shows. I've done a lot of very complicated deadlines. And that's not much different from trying to get a publication out, right? There's a lot of stuff that comes up. People have kids, people have goals and problems, but stuff is due at a certain time. Um, so I think they all kind of push each other, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I really, I can't prove this, but I can almost guarantee that each of the kind of big milestones I've made outside of my community I probably wouldn't have been able to make them had I not had my creativity. Um, like I said, in undergrad, the painting was healing because that was before I had really figured out how to go to therapy and how to like talk about stuff. And in grad school, the poetry and the, the community was survival. You know, had I not found the Black Culture Center and had people to practice poetry with and practice as I'm getting these big words, right? These words that are bigger than the words that I'm using in the Detroit poetry scene, I need somewhere to talk about them and produce poetry group was specifically black people and black undergrads who were also learning these really big words at the same time. So we're practicing it and we're making them rhyme. We're making analogies we're making metaphors. Um, and that made it all feel a lot lighter, right? Because intellectually to be doing a research as a black person, as an indigenous person, as a woman, um, on things that affect all those demographics, really, really heavy. You know, that, that cognitive band, bandwidth is just, it's thin, you know, and you can't explain it. I can't, you know, as much as I love my friends and family, there's only so much I can explain how messed up today was, right? I need somebody to just get it. Um, but the poetry communities allowed us to have that that um, that moment where even though you haven't shared exactly what your day was today, I can tell from the language you use in your poems and the people you reference in your poems, some stuff happened, right? And that it became very healing and very necessary. And I, I'm sure I wouldn't have finished like, I was ready to go probably every other week when I first started grad school. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about that a few times in my mm -hmm. first year. Mm -hmm. But once I found the Black Culture Center, it was like, all right, you know, I can I can do this. I can persist. And if I can't, I can go over there, have some conversations and come back. Um, so I don't think, like I said, I don't think they exist without each other. Really, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know research without poetry. I don't know engineering without design and art. Um, and that's that assemblages thing, right? They all sit together. Right, right. Now, you've mentioned this work healing you, but I know you've also mentioned a few times you feel that you are actually um, 
developing an identity as a healer. Mm. So would you want to talk a bit about that too? Yeah, that's a, a beautiful connection. Um, I can't really think of, you know, any type of origins of feeling like a healer. Um, I come from, you know, the black matriarchy was very loving, right? Um, so I was raised um, in a household with my mother and my grandmother. Um, I saw my father very regularly. Um, he was a very active part of my life, but he didn't live in the house. Um, and then probably a couple days out of the week, I would go stay with my paternal grandmother, right? So. And most of the houses that I lived in, there were women. Um, and it took me a while to realize that people, you know, closed the door when I went to the bathroom because I, I didn't have to do that. <laughs> um, but as a function, I think of being in so many maternal spaces, I um, just started to understand that a lot of the purpose of being is to support other people's beings. Um, and, you know, I think I got that from my grandmothers. And I think they got that from their grandmothers, but also from our, um, our Christian upbringing, the idea of kind of just sacrificing yourself. Um, for, you know, whatever other people might need. Um, so I think growing up, it was always there. Um, and as I got older, I was able to kind of pick at it a little bit and see the parts of it that I didn't think were healthy. But the parts of it that were um, also a part of me, right? And the parts of, me, uh, the parts of my caring nature that uh, weren't just passive, right? It wasn't just that I, in general, wanted people to be okay or in general wanted peace in the world. I specifically wanted to contribute to somebody's life being better or somebody like somebody's life being easier. Um, and I started articulating that probably when it was time for college applications and stuff, because that's when people ask you why you do what you do. Um, but way before that, I was, you know, doing a lot of volunteering and being involved in church and, and, and really thinking about like, how do I use what I have from the schools that I'm in to help other students who don't get to go to the schools I go to. Right. Um, and very quickly, you know, I started teaching at an early age in Sunday schools and those type of things. Um, but once I got to college, that's kind of when the rubber hit the road. And I realized that, um, you know, some needs and some um, communities can't necessarily be addressed by just a good lesson plan, right? Or a good painting or a good poem. Um, a lot of these things are connected to very systemic, historic issues, very, um, you know, intergenerational trauma and that's when I started getting a lot more interested in healing and what that meant and what that felt like. Um, I had a concept of it from Christianity growing up, um, but I started to get into like anatomy and medicine studies, um, mm -hmm. but also really into um, the chakras and the energy systems of the body and how first internally I could tell what healing I hadn't done um, before I started trying to figure out what healing was keeping people from being able to heal, to do or be however they wanted to be. Um, and I think by the time I graduated undergrad, I was, I had gotten a little bit better at articulating that um, as in a community of practice. So if we think about that practitioner mandala, I think for me as a healer, um, the personal and intimate was always kind of there. In college, I got a lot more intentional with the personal healing. Um, but once I graduated from college, I was able to find a community of practice around that type of healing, right? So it was um, both people who were holistic healers who did like Reiki and those type of things. Um, but also people who were kind of cultural healers and were doing like very intentional programming that was um, targeted in specific areas of my neighborhood and focused on, you know, expanding fundamental knowledge bases that weren't taught in schools. Right. So that type of healing. So not just the, the physical, but the intellectual healing. Um, and that very much informed 
what I then decided to go to grad school for. Um, because by that time, I had acknowledged that you know I have a lot of privileges, I have a lot of advantages, and a lot of things that I've been able to heal and work on as a function of my experience in my education, right? As a function of my traveling, as a function of getting fellowship and getting grants. I've met different people, been able to buy different books, and had the time to sit down and just think about these things, right? But there are a lot of people who don't have that time who are still solving really relevant problems. Um, so I became very concerned with like how, not necessarily how can I heal them, right? But how can I help them figure out what healing might be necessary? How can I point them in the direction of healing resources that might be useful? Um, and because for me personally, I had experienced engineering and design thinking as something that could be healing, as something that could be social mobilizing, um, something that could be changing. I was like, I want to figure out how to genuinely, authentically, appropriately um, use design thinking, use everything I know about, you know, how processes work to change the experience of people who are oppressed, right? Who are hurting from things that no amount of personal reflection and therapy can fix, you know? Um, because there are a lot, of, you know, there's a lot of work to be done internally in terms of responding to all these different systems of oppression, but there's also a lot of tangible systems work that needs to happen Yes, um, that you, you know, people don't necessarily have the space to think about if they're still dealing with the day-to-day -day manifestations of those systems. Right. Um, right. So I think that healer identity is one that kind of pulled all the different mandalas together and kind of helped me to determine in all these different spaces, what next decision makes the most sense, right? What next investment, what next application, what next collaboration do I do with the idea in mind that my ultimate goal is to provide some type of healing or transformation or, you know, bettering of a situation. Um, and it, you know, just makes all of life kind of feel like a one big or multiple big systems thinking problems where, mm -hmm. you know, there's these interconnecting um, processes happening, these interconnecting um, iterations of trying this solution and trying that one and hearing from this, you know, all of that is always happening for me, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. It's hard to describe, but it's really exciting. Yes, yes. It's kind of like, you know, you were talking about the, the center of the mandala. And so it's, it's you know, healing can be mm -hmm. the center, the inspiration. That's Yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to actually write this up. Yes, yes, you need to. You get, get these degrees first. <laughs> yes. So Chanel, you, uh, you know, discussed kind of in your thinking what is next for you and how you're conceptualizing your identities as you go forward. Are there some uh, examples of projects that you have worked on or are going to be working on that you've used to uh, kind of pull these identities together or used, used aspects of your identities to accomplish? Yeah, there are a few. Um, I've been trying to make space both for each of those different practices to grow on their own, but also to make sure I'm giving them space to feed each other. Um, last year, I was able to start a project that really allowed me to cross pollinate across all the different skills and all the different practices. Um, I started a magazine in June of 2020, and that was incredible. Um, it allowed me to blend the artist and the storyteller, um, but also the activists who really thinks there's topics and information that needs to be shared. Um, so I had the idea to do it originally by myself, but um, that's not really how the world works. And as I was complaining about how much work it was, one of my friends was like, you have graphic design friends, like you have people, why don't you, you know, do this? Um, so the magazine, even publishing the magazine has its own kind of mandala where I went from like, I can do this myself. Okay, I'm going to complain and share it with my friends to actually let me find some community to help. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, 
Bitten, right? Yep. Yep. So as a function of those collaborations, we started Bitten Magazine, B-I-T-T-E-N Magazine. It is a quarterly print and online magazine focused on sharing relevant stories for oppressed populations in a beautiful way. Um, And that has been incredible. I think it's allowed me to um, take some of my research ideas and figure out how to describe those both visually, but also more succinctly. Um, but also allow me to start collaborating with people who I might not have been able to collaborate in an academic research sense, but who are doing a lot of really cool things in a community um, research kind of way. Um, so that's one of my favorite projects, I think, right now. I'm also seeking research opportunities that will help me continue to develop as a qualitative researcher. I really enjoy um, doing interviews, doing focus groups, and interacting with community spaces. Um, so I'm looking for stuff that allows me to focus on cognition or social problem solving, really look at that space between institutions and communities because I think those spaces are the most generative in terms of letting all these different identities cross-pollinate, right? It's a little easier to do that when the space is already cross-disciplinary. So I'm really excited. I kind of think, you know, I mentioned this last time, I think the sky is the starting point for a lot of this stuff. Um, And I'm I'm realizing, you know, as much as there are journeys and there are different ways to become professional or become successful, that I really can't do this wrong um, as a function of how genuine I think I've been to choosing the work and choosing the, the topics that I'm working on. Um, I can't mess it up. You know, I'm, even if stuff doesn't go entirely one way or another way, I'm still, I still find myself satisfied. Um, so that's really exciting. Well, I do encourage people to, to go to your uh, website, the chanelbb.com because um, I know I've been blown away by looking, uh, <laughs> looking around it and thinking, how can somebody so young do all of this work? It's yeah. it's just really amazing. That website is a beautiful scrapbook too. It is a it it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always end again with advice, and and you had some from your first podcast, but given what we've discussed here, I'm sure you'll have uh, some additional advice for the listeners. Um, yeah, I think first. Uh, just understanding that identity and skill development is not unidirectional or even bi-directional. Um, it happens in a network, it happens in a system, it happens in a spectrum in a very mucky space. Um, I think the more that we can understand that both as people and also as researchers interested in those things, um, the more we can try to attack issues that are affecting different identities from a lot of different perspectives as opposed to just trying to identify one pain point um, because pain doesn't really happen like that, just like identity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also the idea that community is needed for growth of identities and of um, these practices. I know for me, that was um, profound um, because I grew up very, you know, overachiever, very kind of self-sufficient. I was also only child, so they pretty deep. Um, But as I got older and as I started doing this work in, in real life, I realized that nothing develops in a vacuum, you know, nothing develops in isolation. And as much as I can become really good in my house by myself, I can't replace or fabricate the experience of talking with other people, the experience of learning from other people. Um, so I think that is important um, because a lot of people, especially people who might not identify as an artist or as a poet or as an engineer, right, or as a researcher, um, they always feel like I, I need to just go figure out how to be this by myself. Um, but it's a teaching thing. It's a community thing. So I think that's important. And then lastly, um, just probably the idea that cross-disciplinary teams are amazing. They produce really interesting results. Um, They take a lot of work to set up. They take a lot of work to maintain. Um, And because of that, I think they are often shied away from 
Um, but when I think about the really big problems facing the communities I care about and also kind of human humankind at large, they're going to require cross-disciplinary teams. So I think, you know, as we start to change our perspectives and, and really begin to enjoy the chaos that's a part of working across this disciplines, I think we can do a lot deeper um, and more meaningful work. So that's my advice, you know, consider the whole space of identity, the this, this spectrum, possibly a mandala. Um, don't forget the community and be okay with the, the chaos of cross-disciplinary teams. They're amazing. <laughs> well, Chanel, you're amazing too. And oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for, for being willing to share so much of yourself and your ideas. Um, very, very beneficial and enlightening. Yes, thank you I, so much for having me. And I know you'll continue to do wonderful things. You're right. You can't miss it up. <laughs> yeah, I put it in on record now, right? So I have yes. to do it. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that's a great place to stop. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.